History of England, Chapter Eleven, Part Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Eleven, Part Ten. The history of the Comprehension Bill presents a remarkable contrast to the history of the Toleration Bill. The two bills had a common origin, and, to a great extent, a common object. They were framed at the same time, and laid aside at the same time. They sank together into oblivion, and they were, after the lapse of several years, again brought together before the world. Both were laid by the same peer on the table of the Upper House, and both were referred to the same select committee but it soon began to appear that they would have widely different fates. The Comprehension Bill was indeed a neater specimen of legislative workmanship than the Toleration Bill, but was not, like the Toleration Bill, adapted to the wants, the feelings, and the prejudices of the existing generation. Accordingly, while the Toleration Bill found support in all quarters, the Comprehension Bill was attacked from all quarters, and was at last coldly and languidly defended even by those who had introduced it. About the same time at which the Toleration Bill became law with the general concurrence of public men, the Comprehension Bill was, with a concurrence not less general, suffered to drop. The Toleration Bill still ranks among those great statutes which are epochs in our constitutional history. The Comprehension Bill is forgotten. No collector of antiquities has thought it worth preserving. A single copy, the same which Nottingham presented to the peers, is still among our parliamentary records, but has been seen by only two or three persons now living. It is a fortunate circumstance that, in this copy, almost the whole history of the bill can be read. In spite of cancellations and interlineations, the original words can easily be distinguished from those which were inserted in the committee or on the report. The first clause, as it stood when the bill was introduced, dispensed all the ministers of the established church from the necessity of subscribing the thirty-nine articles. For the articles was substituted a declaration which ran thus, I do approve of the doctrine and worship and government of the Church of England by law established, as containing all things necessary to salvation, and I promise, in the exercise of my ministry, to preach and practice according thereunto. Another clause granted similar indulgence to the members of the two universities. Then it was provided that any minister who had been ordained after the Presbyterian fashion might, without reordination, acquire all the privileges of a priest of the established church. He must, however, be admitted to his new functions by the imposition of the hands of a bishop, who was to pronounce the following form of words, Take thou authority to preach the word of God, and administer the sacraments, and to perform all other ministerial offices in the Church of England. The person thus admitted was to be capable of holding any rectory or vicarage in the kingdom. Then followed clauses providing that a clergyman might, except in a few churches of peculiar dignity, wear the surplus, or not, as he thought fit, that the sign of the cross might be omitted in baptism, that children might be christened, if such were the wish of their parents, without godfathers or godmothers, and that persons who had a scruple about receiving the Eucharist kneeling might receive it sitting. 
the concluding clause was drawn in the form of a petition. It was proposed that the two houses should request the king and queen to issue a commission empowering thirty divines of the established church to revise the liturgy, the canons, and the constitution of the ecclesiastical courts, and to recommend such alterations as might on inquiry appear to be desirable. The bill went smoothly through the first stages. Compton, who since Sancroft had shut himself up at Lambeth, was virtually primate, supported Nottingham with ardor. In the committee, however, it appeared that there was a strong body of churchmen who were determined not to give up a single word or form. To whom it seemed that the prayers were no prayers without the surplus, the babe no Christian if not marked with the cross, the bread and wine no memorials of redemption or vehicles of grace if not received on bended knee. Why, these persons asked, was the docile and affectionate son of the church to be disgusted by seeing the irreverent practices of a conventicle introduced into her majestic choirs? Why should his feelings, his prejudices, if prejudices they were, be less considered than the whims of schismatics? If, as Burnett and men like Burnett were never weary of repeating, indulgence was due to a weak brother, was it less due to the brother whose weakness consisted in the excess of his love for an ancient, a decent, a beautiful ritual, associated in his imagination from childhood, with all that is most sublime and endearing, than to him whose morose and litigious mind was always devising frivolous objections to innocent and salutary usages? But, in truth, the scrupulosity of the Puritan was not that sort of scrupulosity which the Apostle had commanded believers to respect. It sprang not from morbid tenderness of conscience, but from censoriousness and spiritual pride. And none who had studied the New Testament could have failed to observe that, while we are charged carefully to avoid whatever may give scandal to the feeble, we are taught by divine precept and example to make no concession to the supercilious and uncharitable Pharisee. Was everything which was not of the essence of religion to be given up as soon as it became unpleasing to a knot of zealots, whose heads had been turned by conceit and the love of novelty? Painted glass, music, holidays, fast days, were not of the essence of religion. Were the windows of King's College Chapel to be broken at the demand of one set of fanatics? Was the organ of Exeter to be silenced to please another? Were all the village bells to be mute because tribulation wholesome, and deacon Ananias thought them profane? Was Christmas no longer to be a day of rejoicing? Was Passion Week no longer to be a season of humiliation? These changes, it is true, were not yet proposed. But if, so the high churchman reasoned, we once admit that what is harmless and edifying is to be given up because it offends some narrow understandings and some gloomy tempers, where are we to stop? And is it not probable that, by thus attempting to heal one schism, we may cause another? All those things which the Puritans regard as the blemishes of the church are by a large part of the population reckoned among her attractions. May she not, in ceasing to give scandal to a few sour precisians, cease also to influence the hearts of many who now delight in her ordinances? Is it not to be apprehended that, for every proselyte whom she allures from the meeting-house, ten of her old disciples may turn away from her maimed rites and dismantled temples, and that these new separatists may either form themselves into a sect 
far more formidable than the sect which we are now seeking to conciliate, or may in the violence of their disgust at a cold and ignoble worship be tempted to join in the solemn and gorgeous idolatry of Rome? It is remarkable that those who held this language were by no means disposed to contend for the doctrinal articles of the Church. The truth is that, from the time of James I, that great party which has been peculiarly zealous for the Anglican polity and the Anglican ritual has always leaned strongly towards Arminianism, and has therefore never been much attached to a confession of faith framed by reformers who, on questions of metaphysical divinity, generally agreed with Calvin. One of the characteristic marks of that party is the disposition which it has always shown to appeal, on points of dogmatic theology, rather to the liturgy, which was derived from Rome, than to the articles and homilies, which were derived from Geneva. The Calvinistic members of the Church, on the other hand, have always maintained that her deliberate judgment on such points is much more likely to be found in an article or a homily than in an ejaculation of penitence or a hymn of thanksgiving. It does not appear that, in the debates on the Comprehension Bill, a single high churchman raised his voice against the clause which relieved the clergy from the necessity of subscribing the articles, and of declaring the doctrine contained in the homilies to be sound. Nay, the declaration which, in the original draft, was substituted for the articles, was much softened down on the report. As the clause finally stood, the ministers of the church were required to declare, not that they approved of her constitution, but merely that they submitted to it. Had the bill become law, the only people in the kingdom who would have been under the necessity of signing the articles would have been the dissenting preachers. The easy manner in which the zealous friends of the church gave up her confession of faith presents a striking contrast to the spirit with which they struggled for her polity and her ritual. The clause which admitted Presbyterian ministers to hold benefices without episcopal ordination was rejected. The clause which permitted scrupulous persons to communicate sitting very narrowly escaped the same fate. In the committee it was struck out, and, on the report, was with great difficulty restored. The majority of peers in the House was against the proposed indulgence, and the scale was but just turned by the proxies. But by this time it began to appear that the bill which the high churchmen were so keenly assailing was menaced by dangers from a very different quarter. The same considerations which had induced Nottingham to support a comprehension made comprehension an object of dread and aversion to a large body of dissenters. The truth is that the time for such a scheme had gone by. If a hundred years earlier, when the division in the Protestant body was recent, Elizabeth had been so wise as to abstain from requiring the observance of a few forms which a large part of her subjects considered as popish, she might perhaps have averted those fearful calamities which, forty years after her death, afflicted the church. But the general tendency of schism is to widen. Had Leo X, when the exactions and impostures of the pardoners first roused the indignation of Saxony, corrected those evil practices with a vigorous hand, it is not improbable that Luther would have died in the bosom of the Church of Rome. But the opportunity was suffered to escape and when, a few years later, the Vatican would gladly have purchased peace by yielding the original subject of quarrel, the original subject of quarrel was almost forgotten. 
the inquiring spirit which had been roused by a single abuse had discovered or imagined a thousand. Controversies engendered controversies. Every attempt that was made to accommodate one dispute ended by producing another. And at length the general council, which, during the earlier stages of the distemper, had been supposed to be an infallible remedy, made the case utterly hopeless. In this respect, as in many others, the history of Puritanism in England bears a close analogy to the history of Protestantism in Europe. The Parliament of 1689 could no more put an end to nonconformity by tolerating a garb or a posture than the doctors of Trent could have reconciled the Teutonic nations to the papacy by regulating the sale of indulgences. In the sixteenth century Quakerism was unknown, and there was not in the whole realm a single congregation of independents or Baptists. At the time of the Revolution, the independents, Baptists, and Quakers were a majority of the dissenting body, and these sects could not be gained over on any terms which the lowest of low churchmen would have been willing to offer. The independent held that a national church, governed by any central authority whatever, pope, patriarch, king, bishop, or synod, was an unscriptural institution, and that every congregation of believers was, under Christ, a sovereign society. The Baptist was even more irreclaimable than the Independent, and the Quaker even more irreclaimable than the Baptist. Concessions, therefore, which would once have extinguished nonconformity, would not now satisfy even one-half of the nonconformists and it was the obvious interest of every nonconformist, whom no concession would satisfy, that none of his brethren should be satisfied. The more liberal the terms of comprehension, the greater was the alarm of every separatist who knew that he could in no case be comprehended. There was but slender hope that the dissenters, unbroken and acting as one man, would be able to obtain from the legislature full admission to civil privileges and all hope of obtaining such admission must be relinquished, if Nottingham should, by the help of some well-meaning but short-sighted friends of religious liberty, be enabled to accomplish his design. If his bill passed, there would doubtless be a considerable defection from the dissenting body, and every defection must be severely felt by a class already outnumbered, depressed, and struggling against powerful enemies. Every proselyte, too, must be reckoned twice over, as a loss to the party which was even now too weak, and as a gain to the party which was even now too strong. The church was but too well able to hold her own against all the sects in the kingdom. And, if those sects were to be thinned by a large desertion, and the church strengthened by a large reinforcement, it was plain that all chance of obtaining any relaxation of the Test Act would be at an end, and it was but too probable that the Toleration Act might not long remain unrepealed. Even those Presbyterian ministers whose scruples the Comprehension Bill was expressly intended to remove were by no means unanimous in wishing it to pass. The ablest and most eloquent preachers among them had, since the Declaration of Indulgence had appeared, been very agreeably settled in the capital and in other large towns, and were now about to enjoy, under the sure guarantee of an act of Parliament, that toleration which, under the Declaration of Indulgence, had been illicit and precarious. The situation of these men was such as the great majority of the divines of the established church might well envy. Few indeed of the parochial clergy were so abundantly supplied with comforts as the favorite orator of a great assembly of nonconformists in the city. 
the voluntary contributions of his wealthy hearers, aldermen and deputies, West India merchants and Turkey merchants, wardens of the company of fishmongers and wardens of the company of goldsmiths, enabled him to become a landowner or a mortgagee. The best broadcloth from Blackwell Hall and the best poultry from Leadenhall Market were frequently left at his door. His influence over his flock was immense. Scarcely any member of a congregation of separatists entered into a partnership, married a daughter, put a son out as apprentice, or gave his vote at an election without consulting his spiritual guide. On all political and literary questions the minister was the oracle of his own circle. It was popularly remarked during many years that an eminent dissenting minister had only to make his son an attorney or a physician, that the attorney was sure to have clients and the physician to have patients, while a waiting woman was generally considered as a helpmeet for a chaplain in holy orders of the established church. The widows and daughters of opulent citizens were supposed to belong in a peculiar manner to nonconformist pastors. One of the great Presbyterian rabbis, therefore, might well doubt whether, in a worldly view, he should be benefited by a comprehension. He might indeed hold a rectory or a vicarage when he could get one, but in the meantime he would be destitute, his meeting-house would be closed, his congregation would be dispersed among the parish churches. If a benefice were bestowed on him, it would probably be a very slender compensation for the income which he had lost. Nor could he hope to have, as a minister of the Anglican Church, the authority and dignity which he had hitherto enjoyed. He would always, by a large portion of the members of that church, be regarded as a deserter. He might, therefore, on the whole, very naturally wish to be left where he was. There was consequently a division in the Whig party. One section of that party was for relieving the dissenters from the Test Act, and giving up the Comprehension Bill. Another section was for pushing forward the Comprehension Bill, and postponing to a more convenient time the consideration of the Test Act. The effect of this division among the friends of religious liberty was that the high churchmen, though a minority in the House of Commons, and not a majority in the House of Lords, were able to oppose with success both the reforms which they dreaded. The Comprehension Bill was not passed, and the Test Act was not repealed. End of chapter 11, part 10